This is Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where you can come and get lit, Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get set for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I'm pretty excited about today's writer because we share some similarities. One of these being that we both come from Italian-Canadian families. And yes, this does come up as a feature of our conversation today. The other is our mutual love of fantasy and speculative fiction. Yes, in my youth, I was a bit of a fantasy fiction nerd. And so today's writer, Terry Favreau, especially delights me. Favreau is a Toronto-based novelist, essayist, storyteller, and comic book writer. Her new novel, The Sister Sputnik, about which we're talking today, is the sequel to her acclaimed speculative fiction novel, Sputnik's Children. Apropos these novels and today's episode, I should add that Favreau was commissioned by CBC Books in 2016 to write and perform a story about her father's obsession with robots titled Death and Loving Fabrications for the CBC Books digital series. This is my interview with Terry Favreau. Hello, Terry Favreau, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Thanks, Linda. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I thought we would just head right into the conversation by asking you about your new book. Why don't you tell all the listeners out there about your new book? Uh, the book is called The Sister Sputnik, and it is actually a sequel to a novel that I had published in 2017 called Sputnik's Children. It kind of lives in that in that funny cross-genre world of being a a speculative fiction, sort of science fiction, kind of a time travel book, maybe more of an alternate history book. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the Sputnik's Children really is is kind of a science fiction book set in a a Cold War alternative universe where Cold War actually went hot in 1979, as it didn't in our world. Right. A Sister Sputnik is really a continuation of that story that happens in the near future in various alternate worlds, but starting in a near future post-pandemic Toronto. So I will say, so uh, it's really a book about a storyteller and her two assistants, Unicorn Girl and a artificial intelligence named Cassandra who travel the multiverse as itinerant storytellers. And uh, it's basically one long shaggy dog story, I suppose, (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed reading the manuscript, so I, I've had, my listeners should know, I had an advanced copy. So I re- was really fascinated by the idea of time travel and your references to quantum physics and so forth. How much research does one have to do for this kind of novel? Well, these days, it's you have to do research, but these days it's pretty easy to do the kind of research I did, you know, thanks to... Thanks to the internet and the Google and all that. Um, (laughs) Certainly, you know, this particular theory of quantum physics, which was really 
brought to the fore in the in the mid fifties by a quantum physicist at Princeton named uh, Hugh Everett III, that you've which you've seen kind of explored in in endless numbers of movies. For example, Run Lola Run mm-hmm. being my favorite example, which is that oh I love that yes, movie so much the best quantum physics movie ever made in my view um and it in that movie basically lola the german movie that takes place in berlin lola it's it's basically you're seeing her 15 minutes of her life or i think it's a 30 minute block each little block Mm. of of her day is sort of broken out into a 30 minute real time event where she is trying to basically trying to save her boyfriend from being killed yes yes and she makes a different decision at different points in that run. And depending on what that decision is, that 30 minutes plays out completely differently. So you're seeing three possible outcomes to Lola's actions. And that really comes out of Hugh Everett's research that, you know, that there, it's now called the many worlds theory, which is that there are an infinite number of realities. And that for every decision that we make in our lives, there's a there's another reality where we made a different decision, which which splits off into yet another reality. And these in other fissures, words, these multiple multiple fissures, fissures in time. Mm-hmm. So that was certainly kind of the the starting point, and and it's not it's not something that's original to me. Obviously, there have been a lot of other writers, and as I say, movies particularly love using this device. the The difference with the sister Sputnik is that I kind of took you <laughs> Everett's research and put a different twist on it, which is that the only way that you can create one of these alternate worlds is in the aftermath of an atomic bomb being detonated. <laughs> so they are finite and there there were no alternate worlds until the Trinity tests in New Mexico in 1945, obviously before Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. And that the first alternate world, which is actually the world that my heroine, her- hero comes from, that that alternate world split off, you know, in 1945. And then from then on, there are, I, I can't remember the exact figure that we use in, in the Sister Sputnik, but I believe it's 2035, roughly, yes. alternate worlds, which at the point I was writing the book could could have changed now. Uh, <laughs> it's the number of, it's number of nuclear detonations there have been on Earth. So oh, um, that's the reason. That's the reason. And um, every time there's another nuclear, you know, it's it's surprising. There's been over 2000 nuclear detonations, but there have been a lot of there's been a lot of nuclear testing. It's disturbing. It's also so disturbing. Yeah, I mean, it, it and I actually have done a little bit of research back when I wrote the first book about what the impact of that has been. And there, there is actually a lot of background radiation in the world that only exists because of uh, for that reason is, is and didn't exist pre-1945 wow. so we we actually do live in a different world that's right the old the old story about when they were looking at at baby teeth in the early 60s and they found strontium 90 what in baby teeth which is from nuclear bombs so we are actually I always like to say, you know, the, the the cell phone has changed our bodies, which I really do believe. Oh, I believe that. That's a whole... Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I believe that. But but so have nuclear bombs have also changed our bodies too. We carry around radioactive materials inside of us that are are the result of fallout in the atmosphere that's gone around the world in the last how many years since 
since 1976, almost 77 years. And my, my math is, my arithmetic isn't great. But, but anyway, <laughs> not quite 80 I years. I wouldn't presume to correct it because my math is no better. <laughs> so, so the research that went into it, that, that was part of it. I also, I have written in the past nonfiction about robotics. Oh, how interesting. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, I have another a book out called Generation Robot, which is actually a nonfiction book, a sort of a popular science book about robots and artificial intelligence and which plays a significant hand in this novel. In this book. Mm. Yeah. And in fact, some of the some of the robots and robot like creatures that you see in the book are quite real. They're not they're not I didn't make them up. <laughs> but hence unicorns' response. They're, don't call them robots. Call, don't call them robots. Call them artificial people. You know, and that's obviously something that's been played with in the world of science fiction for quite a while. This whole thing about what do you, when you have sentient humanoid robots, what, how do you refer to them? What's the politically correct term? So I had already done quite a lot of research about robots writing this other book, which was sort of between these two novels. So Mm -hmm. uh, Sputnik's Mm -hmm. Children was published in 2017. I was still finishing the research for Generation Robot, and I was actually doing a lot of interviews with roboticists around the time that the book was published. So the following year, no, so it's 2017, 2018 Generation Robot was published, and now it's 2022. So um, the way things, you know, obviously the pandemic has really accelerated the pace of it has. Uh, uptake with, with robots. But a lot of the robots that I saw, read about, interviewed people about, they are just further along that, you know, path of evolution. So when you see some of the robots in my book, mm-hmm. robots, for example, I have robots that cook in ghost kitchens. Yes. Sort of, those are, you know, there are actually, well, ghost kitchens are becoming quite a thing now. And I don't think they're going to go away, even when real restaurants open up. Those robots, those cooking robots are quite real. And I think we're going to be given the problems a lot of restaurants are having now with keeping their staff because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I have a feeling you you will they're very very expensive but I think you are going to see places start to use them more and more that was re- research that was kind of done between the two books and I used it in a fictional world as well as you know talking about real robots in this other book so your research was showing I mean it's it's <laughs> fantastic um, in terms of your book, the levels of research were fascinating for me because, of course, there's the scientific research, which you're now addressing, but also I felt that there were other levels, like the moral or ethical levels that were at work in the novel. And then one other level, so I'd like to talk about the moral and ethical levels too, but then also the emotional level of the book. So at one moment, for example, there are so many really good moments, but there's one moment where you speak about refugees and and you refer to what well, unicorn girl is speaking and saying to Sputnik chick she's a refugee your world imploded or rather her world imploded her home world was gone she stopped the future because it was going to be so horrible with everyone suffering from radiation sickness and mutations and whatever 
She gave up her past and her family to save other people. That's kind of like what happened to both sets of my grandparents in the 60s and 70s. Left everything behind, started over in Canada. They lost their pasts and their relatives and friends, just like Sputnik Chick. Mm-hmm. It's a great moment because suddenly what what this opens up for the readers is that this kind of thing isn't just fantasy. There's a real emotional equivalent that has happened to other people. Could you speak a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I've always felt is that some of the earliest superheroes, and Superman is the obvious one, really speak to the immigrant experience, especially the immigrant experience for someone who was fleeing their home country and knew that they were never going to be able to go back, the refugee experience. I've often felt that there's a a real connection between (laughs) comic books and a lot of those early comics, in fact, were created by refugees, people who came out of the, you know, the Jewish diaspora, um, you know, and I suppose you could say that, that for example, a, a Superman figure is sort of might be inspired by the golem, for example, which is mm. something that Michael Chabon explored in the, the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay. But I, I think that for me, the idea of, you know, your home planet exploding, again, I'm talking about Superman, but you know, it's kind of the classic superhero origin story your 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 parents put you in a capsule and send you off to who knows where and you land on another planet and you're the only one Mm. of that Mm -hmm. of your from krypton or wherever it is and you have and you have no past right so you know i think in some ways it's a little bit different today although i suppose if you're fleeing afghanistan or syria you Mm-hmm. Right now, you may never, you may expect that you will never see your family again, or maybe be t- even be able to talk to them. Certainly, in the early 20th century, mid 20th century, once you made that trip, um, especially if you were leaving people behind in a country that was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, becoming a failed state, being overrun, being where you know your your family was being taken off to, to concentration camps you probably felt that you were being catapulted into a different world and that the past was gone. I mean, certainly I knew people in my childhood who ended up in that situation. Exactly. They came from uh, countries. They were basically the, the, the rather it was considered an insult to be called a DP (sighs) when I was a kid displaced person. I don't know why, because it was just sort of, again, it's like refugee, but but displaced persons literally had no they had no country mm. not only to they had no status they had no citizenship the countries that they came from sometimes didn't exist anymore because the borders had shifted so much during that sort of you know the period mm-hmm. during and immediately after world war 1 and after world war 2 so they really had lost they had lost their identity, culture, past, family. So, so 
so the time traveler that that my character Debbie slash Sputnik chick is <laughs> has really literally lost her whole her whole world is gone. She's kind of the only one who who and these these mutants they call the exceptionals also the know, exceptionals yes the exceptionals know <laughs> that, that that there was this other world. No one you know and no one else knows that she basically destroyed a world that was just becoming too too damaged to continue in without people just living in a constant state of suffering. So she ended it. That's the ethical question too. That's the, yeah. I, I think of a lot of, of people who have gone through the immigration refugee experience as being kind of a type of time traveler or a type of almost astronaut into a different reality than they, that they can, and they can never go back to that other world in a lot of cases. So long answer to your question, but (laughs) yes. (laughs) A fascinating answer. It works really well. It creates these emotional valences that really hook the reader, hook to me, certainly. And so I really appreciated this dimension of the book. I wanted to also talk a little bit about the genre that you're choosing. Why this, as you say, you introduce Mm -hmm. the book by suggesting that it's an amalgam of sorts. And then, and then invokes the graphic novel as well. And so I wondered why this particular amalgam? Oh, because I love it so. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's absolutely the answer. I, my, as a, as a reader, uh, as, a, as a young child, and I suppose this is true for a lot of kids, I absolutely loved fantasy and science fiction and, and, and comic books. And my parents were not snobs about comic books. I, you know, I read a lot of, you know, so-called good books, (laughs) but, but, you know, especially, especially if I was sick, which seemed to happen a lot when I was a kid, Mm. my father would just go out and buy like these big packages of bound comic books, you know, with Archie and little Lulu and stuff. And and I would put up with it. But what I really wanted was I really wanted Superman, Batman, the DC Marvel universe. So I absolutely (laughs) just... Just adored those books, along with reading Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov and C.S. Lewis. And that never left me. I've, I still really, really like what I, I'm, I'm not a huge reader of hard science fiction, mm-hmm. but, but I really love what I would call more literary science fiction. There are a number of writers out there, are a lot of writers out there doing amazing things with, with this particular genre and station 11 (laughs) station 11 one of my absolute favorites yeah we'll be chatting about station 11 in just a minute I was fascinated by also by the bookishness of the book Mm -hmm. so you're you're confirming that opinion right now as you talk about your own reading patterns as a child and they do inform very clearly this book as well so there's a a reference in the um in the book to the to the archives mm-hmm. which is my own research background too I'm fascinated by archives but also about the fact that books are increasingly becoming rare commodities no one reads books anymore right it's that's a kind of reference in there and then of course both Sputnik chicken and unicorn are storytellers that's their role so I wondered if you could also speak a little bit about the fact that you're being a little bit meta. <laughs> you're writing a book in an era when disputably books are 
they're increasingly becoming these rare objects. Yes. And so you're writing a book in this era and talking about storytellers. I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah. Oh, I think that that what what's happening in this it, in the, in the part of the book you're talking about is sort of, this is mentioned in in 2025, so in the very near future. <laughs> I think what you're seeing there is the fact that we are we have been for some time, and I think are going further into an age where, on the one hand, there is an enormous thirst for stories. In fact, if if you call just about anything a story or you kind of frame it as a story, it's a lot easier to get people to accept what you are trying to sell them, for example. <laughs> I think and I think story is why, you know, we have a million streaming channels with the million shows on them. People are de- are desperately want that. Oh yes. But of course as time has gone on, we have seen the rise of for example, the audiobook, which I find absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. And and here and you and I are as you know on your podcast. You're you're part of this world where we are we <laughs> where I'm I'm giving you a rambling answer. I believe that we're going into a time and have been in a time for a while where we want to take in stories with our ears and to and obviously with our eyes on film. Mm more than we want we want to hear those stories we want to be told those stories the old around the campfire kind of of storytelling mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. than the classic sitting down with a book or with a your kobo or whatever it's interesting that there was a real sense when mm-hmm. um you know when the when the kindle was was introduced that digital books would completely wipe out print which absolutely did not happen. In fact, I think right now, I'm sure someone listening will will be able to correct me on this, but I believe that at least in Canada, only about 30% of the market right now is really focused on on ebooks. Mm. I think audiobooks are the game changer. I have to agree. I was never so I was exactly the type of child that you were. I read books all the time. And I didn't think that I would like audiobooks, but I have to say in the past year, I have absolutely transitioned into really appreciating the storytelling methods of audiobooks. Yeah. And I think too, that a lot, you know, I think the audiobook voice artists bring something to it too. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Oh, yeah. So you can change your experience of a book by listening to it rather than reading it. So what's happening kind of in in the sister Sputnik with books is I invented this language, which I am now very sorry. I didn't give graphic examples of in the book, but it's a, it's a, it's a language called Picto, um, the pictorial international coded over language. Yes. And um, Picto is basically um, emojis. So it's just, it's just, it's just an evolution of the emoji. This actual idea that, you know, obviously by 2025, we're not all going to be reading Picto or any kind of version of it. <laughs> but, but one of the the people that I interviewed when I was writing the robot book, a guy named Xavier Snellgrove, he introduced me to a form of AI that is used to, to use to use basically emojis to communicate 
with almost like a rebus. Remember, I remember those old rebuses that used to be around when we were kids where you'd have to put together pictures to form a sentence kind of thing. So he was really exploring ways to do that with, you know, completely pictorial language, like just, you know, pictographs. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, you know, I can see that if we continue to use emojis the way we use them, perhaps one day it will, the language will be completely consumed by this kind of Mm -hmm. visual pictorial representation. So my feeling was that if that happened, anything in print or in print digital or in digital format, anything you use your eyes to read with, let's put it that way, might not be in the alphabet anymore. It might all become a type of pictograph or we would simply hear everything. Yes. You know, a lot of those kinds of things I was playing with are came out of came out of conversations I had with people who were either involved with artificial intelligence or robotics. Interesting. And Picto is definitely one of them. <laughs> it was such an amazing dimension of the book as well. So I thought on the one hand, you're, what you're suggesting is that the primacy of, of print will decline, but not the primacy of storytelling. Oh, no. I think that, I think that storytelling absolutely, it's become cherished. I remember telling somebody once at a library reading, they were asking about how do you find time for to write books, that, that kind of question, mm-hmm. a question about the literary, the writing process, right? Mm-hmm. And and I jokingly said, although this is true, I said, well, I don't have Netflix, and there were, <laughs> which is true. And there was an audible gasp in the room. No way. <laughs> it was kind of like, how can you not have Netflix, you know? Yeah, there's no question. Storytelling... Well, obviously, storytelling is is essential to, to to being a human being, but I think it's become enshrined in everything. Mm. I mean, I have this other life where, I, as a as a as a writer for you know for writer for hire, let's say I'm a copywriter and I've done mm. a lot of work for with ad agencies, and my title over the years has changed in various ways. But now I have a client who um, I do enough work with that I actually have business cards with them. And I'm, <laughs> and my, and my title is senior storyteller. Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure one of these days we're going to see companies that are going to have chief executive storytellers. It is, it's like, it's been corporatized, Linda, really. Like, That's I mean, fascinating. Just, I had no idea. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the story and and again like i I've, I've been in that game by my day job for many years storytelling was not something that was a common buzzword let's say in advertising or marketing mm-hmm. back when i started back in the 80s it it just wasn't and now it's everything yeah no oh, yeah it's everything so that's why in the very first chapter of the sister sputnik Debbie slash Sputnik chick mentions that when they're not actually telling stories, that they occasionally get very lucrative public relations work, um, you know, making up stories about some, you know, past as prime warriors, uh, you know, adventures with dragons and narcoleptic princesses (laughs) and things like that, because they can revive his reputation by, by telling the right kind of story about him. And when you see that little, bit in the first chapter what you're seeing is me giving a little wink to my <laughs> advertising <laughs> colleagues <laughs> yes. 
because that's me, right? I tell these crazy in, in books, I tell these pretty crazy stories that are actually not so crazy because I know that some of this stuff actually is real. You know this world. But on the other hand, there is also this other commercial aspect of, of storytelling that I'm familiar with that that I continue to do. And it's fascinating to see how those worlds are starting to mesh. It's a question of audience, too. I was thinking about audiences for this book and audiences within the book. And so I think you you seem to be very mindful, you are very mindful, I should say, of the different audiences with whom you're working. So for example, in the book, we have David as the representative audience member, and he seems to me to be a stand-in for us as your audience as well. What was the structural advantage or concept that you had in mind for using someone like David? I love the idea that although this book takes place over a period of months and it takes place in a number of different alternate worlds, that really the whole story takes place over one night on the longest night of the year in two people who are lovers in the past and, you know, stumbled into each other's lives all of a sudden on page two of the book in this completely different world. And that one of them is telling a story to the other. And it's the Arabian Nights. It's Arabian Nights. Yes, indeed. And um, <laughs> and it's also December the 21st. And it's the longest night of the year. Mm. And this happens to be in a world that's lost most of its stories. This world called Cozy World. The Cozies. Mm. And, and which is great for sister Sputnik because they're practically rock stars in cozy world because they have all these they have all these stories (laughs) you know I I just love that idea that structural idea of having of, of grounding this fairly wild story in a very specific place and in a in a like having that constraint of the storytelling, an oral storytelling structure over a very defined period of time. So there are, and and uh, Sputnik's Children is kind of set up this way too, so that you're you're kind of going back and forth between two different realities, two different places. Mm-hmm. But I felt that it, it's a grant, and I think for for the sister Sputnik, it's a grounding technique because the story is. Mm-hmm you know, does move around a lot and does sort of sort of have to take the reader on a journey into some very odd space-time continuum situations. Mm-hmm. But at all times, the teller, the storyteller is in bed, you know, <laughs> which is where some of the- I absolutely loved it. Where, yeah. That's where a lot of the best stories happen, you know? <laughs> So, so I thought, I thought sometimes I, I think I make things too difficult for a reader because I am asking them to come with me out of reality into these other realities and then back into a different reality. I thought this was a way to help the reader follow that structure and just ground, ground it, ground it. Yeah. It worked very well. I liked it. I, I think we should probably try to transition yes, now to let's ta- uh, let's do. <laughs> Station Eleven. Yeah, let's talk about Station Eleven, which I you had asked me at the 
rather I had asked you at the beginning when we were talking about doing an interview together to cite some of your favorite books and you cited Station Eleven, which I had not yet read at the time and have since, I want to say had the pleasure of reading, but actually listening to. So we were talking about the audiobook. I got my hands on the audiobook and listened to Kristen, Kristen rather, Potter, I think is the name of the reader who is excellent. And I felt transported by that rendering of the novel. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the intersections between your novel and Emily St. John Mandel's novel. Yeah. So I had not read Station Eleven. Station Eleven was actually a fairly new book when Sputnik's Children was published. So I read Station Eleven after I'd written Sputnik's Children. Mm. And it was like seeing... (laughs) a family member suddenly appear that I never knew I had or something. I was just Mm. completely gobsmacked by this, that book, because I thought to myself, first of all, I thought this is a science fiction masterpiece. Yes. I think. And second it is. And that's, and the second thing I thought was damn her because (laughs) (laughs) it's just too good. And this, I, I, the, the way that the thought I had, was this is the book I wanted to write. Here it is. I know it's a, you know, maybe it's a ridiculous thought, but that was, you know, I just thought it was, it was, she was speaking to so many of the things that I was trying to speak to in, in that first book. You know, Station Eleven is a book that is about art, I think, as much as it is about a post- pandemic. I mean, I, I probably a lot of people listening to this know the story, but Station Eleven is essentially the story of a pandemic and that much, much worse pandemic than the one that we are still kind of working our way through. Mm-hmm. In that pandemic, the world is is irrevocably and very suddenly changed because about 90% or maybe even more than 90% of the world's population dies of a disease called the Georgian flu within a very, very short space of time. And, and basically what you are seeing is the world, she moves you around a lot in time and space, but you are seeing the world just before this event happens. Mm -hmm. And you are seeing the world 20 years after the event. And you're following Mm -hmm. a little girl who was eight years old at the time that the Georgian flu hit who was on stage performing in a, in a performance of King Lear. And at the time, sort of the fateful night when everyone starts to die. And then 20 years later is part of this itinerant group of performers called the traveling symphony who go from place to place with basically cars and trucks pulled by horses and, Mm -hmm. you know, have old instruments, musical instruments that they've picked up you know, by scavenging them in in people's houses and other buildings as they, as they go. And they have this, this territory that, that they go through where they essentially do what you see in the sister Sputnik, which is they, they entertain people who are the remnants of humanity who are trying to rebuild lives in these little towns and villages. And, and, and the the story is mostly set in kind of uh, upstate, Midwest of the of the United States, upstate New York, Toronto. So they kind of have this very kind of small 
range where they where they go around and and tell these stories. And one of the things that made me absolutely fall in love with Station Eleven was they have a sign on the wagon that says survival is insufficient. Mm. And, you know, which speaks to the fact that we, we need, you know, they, they primarily perform Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. but the idea is that they, that you absolutely have to have stories and art and music to, to be human. And so they're bringing, we're more than just biology. We're more than just biology. And the thing I loved about that sign is that is from Star Trek. (laughs) And so they, in, in station 11, half the time they're they're performing Shakespeare but a lot of the time they're talking about things like Star Trek Mm -hmm. and they're quoting from it and a comic book which is actually where Station Eleven gets its name from Mm -hmm. a comic book that was a one-off self-published comic book that you know in the past in the in the past in the pre-pandemic past survives in Station Eleven Mm -hmm. And is absolutely central to the story. This, you know, that even though only a handful of copies were ever ever published, drives the story in different. I won't get into it because if anyone hasn't read the book, you have to. Yeah, we don't need to have a spoiler alert. No, we're just going to allude to it, but not give anything away. But somehow that comic book survives, and it absolutely mm. changes the course of lives and I would say possibly civilization as it rises out of the ashes. Mm. And I love that. It's tremendous. It's, it's just, just it's just a tremendous, tremendous book. Um and you know she's dealing with in a different way than I was because for me kind of the the apocalyptic event that I was formed by as a child was the fear of being wiped out in a nuclear war. Mm. And that informs particularly Sputnik's children, but also the sister Sputnik. Whereas uh, Mandel's book, which was published several years before we ever heard of COVID-19, um, <laughs> really is about what happens after a world is wiped out by a pandemic, which is a classic sci-fi device like, you know, Earth Abides uh, by George Stewart was, you know, used the same device to, to explore mm. the same ideas back in the 50s. It's a, you know, or 12 monkeys, for example. Oh, yes, right. You know, mm-hmm. so like, as as I borrowed, borrowed Hugh Everett's, you know, research into the many worlds theory, Mandel, I think, has, has also used some of the earlier classic sort of sci-fi explorations of what happens when the world ends and what happens after the world ends and what do we value? What are, you know, will we teach people to read or will it all be about just survival? That kind of thing. We're thinking about sort of similar things in writing our books, but I think she's she's just depicted a different disaster. <laughs> <laughs> you also have different voices. Yes. So I find that your voice, listeners won't know that Terry and I were chatting just before I pressed record, and I was commenting on your voice as being this kind of spirited and what were the words that I was using? Zany, I think. <laughs> Spirited, zany, feisty kind of, it's a different voice from that of Mandel. Yes. Yeah. Mandel is, I think, a more almost, 
would it be fair for me to say almost elegiac voice? I, I think so. I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. if anyone who's listening who's seen the television show, I've only seen the first couple oh, of episodes. Huge controversy about that. Huge controversy. Yeah, because there's because they've changed the story, but that always happens. I mean, there are some things they've changed. And again, I, I won't get caught up in this, but there's something they've changed that I completely think were smart because it's TV. And there were other things I changed and I'm like, what? But but one thing that I found though with the TV show, at least so far, is that it does have that elegiac quality to it. They have, you know, mm-hmm. taken Toronto is now Chicago. You know, they that's been the uh, point of protest. Yeah, well, I was sorry to see that too. However, there are some familiar faces, kind of Canadian actors, and I believe the director <laughs> is a Canadian director. And the funny thing is, it feels Canadian. I kept thinking somehow they moved it to the States, but it <laughs> still feels Canadian. It's Well, I do believe they recorded it in Canada. That, um, that is that they filmed it in Canada. Well, part of it maybe, but they've definitely filmed Chicago is Chicago. It's not Toronto standing yeah. in for Chicago. I looked, I checked because I kept thinking that's got to be Toronto really pretending to be Chicago again. <laughs> but no, apparently it is Chicago. But it, there is something... About, I don't know whether it's the snow or it's the pacing, but there's a Canadianness to that show. Yeah, but you're right. Mandel is a much more, oh, I don't want to say serious because I'm a serious writer too, but I tend to have, I have a somewhat comedic voice. I was about to say you have a comic side that it is renders the book in a completely different way, but the interests yes, absolutely share similar interests. So I did notice that. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. You also both privilege storytelling and art forms for obvious reasons. You're dealing with similar conditions. You're both projecting into the future in different ways. But the voice is yeah. very unique and it's, very different. It's funny because one of the I didn't really realize this until many 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 years ago. I I workshopped some of my writing as as people do, right? I mean, I was a young writer when I was doing this in one of these things where you read mm-hmm. aloud to a group in a in a workshop, a creative writing workshop. So I would go in with mm-hmm. work that I thought was terribly sad and tragic and. Serious, serious writing, Linda, damn it, serious writing. And I'd read it aloud to the workshop and they'd all start laughing. And I thought to myself, what's what's wrong with these people? (laughs) And I discovered that 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 was just my natural writing voice, that what I just thought of Mm -hmm. as a natural way to write us, tell a story, that it was whether I intended it to be or not was funny. So I just stopped, you know, I thought, I don't know why I'm fighting this. So I, I, I mean, I have actually written, very deliberately written humor. Like I used to write for a, a magazine, which sadly in Canada is no more called More Magazine. And actually what mm-hmm. I mostly did for them was were humor pieces. And sometimes, and this is very kind of, kind of, I guess, prescient, I did sort of what you'd call weird technology stories. So they would se- <laughs> they would send me out to you know um, uh, like there was there was one that was just insane. There the, the, at a gym, a very very high end gym in Yorkville in Toronto, 
And they had this new kind of stationary bike that allowed you to, while you were, you know, working out on the bike, to at the same time do brain exercises. Like they had this screen where you were doing like, you know, puzzles and brain teasers and stuff and you were pedaling at the same, it was the most Mm -hmm. ridiculous thing (laughs) you can imagine. And so, you know, and other, and other like-minded kind of, kind of of technology that was supposed to be good for you, but the editors would think this is ridiculous. Send Terry to take a look at it and then write something. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, yeah, I kind of gave up on trying not to be funny. I just figured everything just comes out that way. So, um, Mm. but it isn't deliberate. It just, that is just my, that's just my writing voice. It's about tone though. We're talking about, not about funny moments, but about tone. tone. Yeah. And I, I do think that the tone of your work is comedic. It doesn't mean it isn't earnest or that there isn't these moral or ethical issues being addressed, ones I've already addressed in our conversation earlier today. But I do think there is this kind of comedic tone that that Mandel is, it's a completely different kind it's of... It's a different, yeah. But if, but if you, I think if you enjoy Station Eleven, you probably would like my books. It's oh, yes, kind of I think my so. feeling. There's, there is, they definitely have, share some tr- common interests and, co- you know, there, there is crossover there. So yeah, absolutely. And I think that actually having read Station Eleven did, I think, in some ways affect me when I was writing the Sister Sputnik, mm. um, especially around the idea of the sisters being a group of storytellers, one of whom is actually not even human. Yeah. So yes, yeah. 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 Terry, thank you for spending this time with me today. This was really great. I really oh, it was, I enjoyed I, it. <laughs> my pleasure. This was it's so much fun to be able to talk about things, you know. And, <laughs> Again, this was my interview with Terry Favreau. If you liked today's episode, remember that you can follow us or write a review on whatever platform you use to listen to these episodes, or just drop us a line at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for joining us today, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.